Welcome to the My Risk Advisor podcast. This podcast is for the Australian financial planning ecosystem and we focus heavily on life risk insurance. So whether you've been around for many, many years or you're just starting out, I think you'll get heaps of value out of this podcast. I'm your host, Phil Thompson, and I am a life risk insurance specialist, so I geek out on insurance all day, every day. Hey there, Australia. On today's episode, I've got a really good chat with Russell Hanna, who is a general manager of sales, marketing, client experience, and product at Integrity Life. Wow, he is a busy man. The reason I wanted to have a chat with Russell was I wanted to talk about what are the opportunities and growing pains of being a new insurer. So Integrity is the newest entrant to the market. And I start off this chat with asking Russell the question about how does one actually start an insurance company? Awesome. Well, I guess the first question is, how does one start an insurance company? I've, I'm just a lonely advisor. I've got no idea how all this actually works. So, how does one actually start an insurance company? First things first, you've got to have a vision. You've got to have a vision and a goal around what you're you're trying to, to build and why. Um, and very clearly, you've got to be able to articulate that being worth the, the energy and effort uh, associated with, with pulling a life company together and bringing it to market. Um, so, the business was formed in... October of 2015, and that was actually through the acquisition of the QBE life license. So okay. QBE life license actually date, dates back to the 1960s. So there's there's a there's a history with respect to the the license from which Integrity was born out of. Um, but I think the the most critical aspect is just working through all of the aspects associated with um, you know acquiring the license. And establishing your infrastructure, meeting all of your your requirements around raising capital, and mm. basically being in a position to to come to market. So certainly not something which you wake up one morning and and following day you've got yeah, a life yeah. company. There's a fair amount involved in the background. All right, so I can't start a life company is is what you're basically telling me. Okay, that makes sense. Um, so I get well as you kind of touched on. More importantly, like. You know, there's plenty of life insurers in Australia. Mm. Why why integrity? Why mm. newer life insurer in the market? Help us understand that. So, so when I spoke earlier around the vision uh, of, of why you've established the, an organisation, particularly in a space that's so heavily um, dominated by large incumbent established insurers, is there was a genuine desire to create disruption. We're a very established industry feel as you you would know only too well and mm. you know there's been a blueprint that's been used used uh for many many years around how life companies operate and how they work um and so there was a real desire to disrupt the way in which that status quo existed and i think one of the most significant aspects in in our journey is around how do we actually bring life insurance into the digital age and, and we've got this sort of um, this tagline that's really central to why we wanted to, to come to market is because life insurance, in our opinion, can't continue to exist in an analog world mm. when you consider we're now very much part of a digital age. And yeah. so it's around how do you create an environment that is reflective of the changing world in which we, we all live. So that was a, a real, real driver. And I think the other part as well is just recognising that the way that advice has evolved and changed and advice practices have evolved and changed. They're seeking 
different things from their partners. And some of those things are really quite challenging for the large incumbents for a whole host of reasons and perhaps a more nimble, agile, newer entrant um, may be able to respond a, a little bit more. Yeah, talking about digitising, I literally just came back from lunch from another bigger insurer just talking about, you know, I went on a rant as as you know all too well, Russell, I can go on a bit of a rant, um, went on a rant about how difficult it can be to, to just increase and enforce policy and all of the, the complexity around all of that stuff and um, yeah, so digitize. yeah, I mean we all, as advisors, we all know that, you know, technology is moving so quick and, and insurances has lagged behind. So, yeah, that, I guess that makes a lot of sense. Phil, we, we've got a, a, a real belief from, you know, history and experience that says, you know, advice is becoming more complex and run advice practices is becoming more complex, more difficult. Uh, it's becoming more costly. It's becoming more time consuming. And the reality is when you compound that with the, the time and monetary cost that's involved with then dealing with partners where there may be those inefficiencies or, or where there may not have been the investment in digitising the experience both for the advisor and for the customer, all of that compounds the challenges being being faced and, and we need to navigate our way through. So one of the key things that's important when you've got an opportunity like ours is saying how do we take time cost and monetary cost out of the process for the advisor and the advice mm. practice for the customer but equally for us as a business as well, because every time you you don't automate or you don't digitise a process or a system, you're actually adding costs because you're normally putting people in to play that role or, or to fulfil that process or fulfil that function. And we've yeah, got a right. really strong sort of belief is invest heavily in your digital and tech capability because ultimately what that'll do is you're then putting people into roles where they make a meaningful difference because the human element comes to the fore rather than humans necessarily doing tasks that uh, are really as an absence of having efficiency through your your, your ecosystem. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I guess the, the benefit is starting, what, 2015 was when it all started. Like, you've got a blank canvas. What Help us understand kind of what are the main... Um, benefits of starting everything from scratch and and kind of reinventing the way the way things are done. What are the what are the key benefits of, of being able to do that? The first and foremost aspect is no legacy. You're not trying to move a business that has years, decades, and longer uh, into an environment or a world where you're trying to bring all of that into a more modern, contemporary version of, of what we believe the future looks like. So without that legacy, it allows you to build systems. It uh, allows you to build your ecosystem. It allows you to build the way in which you operate from the ground up. And with that, uh, it allows you the opportunity to be a little bit more innovative. It allows you to be able to learn some of those lessons of the past and be quite agile and responsive to being able to move in different directions because you're creating an environment that's got that flexibility. You know, and, I, and I'm, I'm acutely aware having been part of, you know, large institutions for a big, big chunk of my, my career, um, the ability to be able to move and uh, shift direction when you're talking about a sort of more established incumbent is, is a lot more challenging, whereas we've got a lot more of that flexibility available to us because we do, in essence, have this opportunity to build it from the ground up. There's a other key aspect for me as well is it, it has to be a uh, an environment whereby you're building through the lens of understanding what the challenges are for your partners, for your customers, and you're able to implement those as part of your design work. 
And, you know, one of the parts of my portfolio is, is customer experience. And that's a lot about speed and practices like yours, Phil, and a lot of our listeners to understand where are the pain points? Where are the things that really cause you your most frustration? Where are the things that cause you additional cost, whether it be time or monetary? And how do we make sure that we're building something that tries to eliminate those for you and, and obviously for practices that we work with? Yeah, and I mean, you, you kind of touch on that. You've been around for for a while in in the business, an executive in in insurance companies, and quite a few. Um, what are the kind of those those learnings that you you took from those previous experiences? Um, and you said, okay, integrity is going to take these awesome things that they did, or maybe we're going to leave those behind. Yeah. So, what are some of those learnings from your previous experiences? I, I think, like any any experience that we have in life, um, you take some really good things uh, around what you've seen and what you've experienced. And I certainly know that, you know, this opportunity is as a result of having having that past experience. Um, what it allows you to do, and I think this is the, the most critical aspect, is you, you can bring some of the, the insights and learnings around how uh, a large institution operates, particularly from a, a governance and a risk management perspective uh, and, and appropriately meeting your... Uh, your your requirements as set down by APRA and ASIC because you you've been in those environments where it's well structured and it's well well advanced and matured. I think then you bring it into a small startup like ourselves, and what you need to find is the right balance between what's appropriate for a large institution versus what's you know most appropriate for an organisation like ours. And they can't be polar opposite. That you know, but what you do have to ensure is that it is appropriate to your size your scale, your, your maturity and all those type of things. So bringing elements of that maturity in is, is certainly one aspect. I think for me personally, um, Phil, I have worked in, in large organisations and you, you think you understand and you think you appreciate what it is to be in a small business, but the only time you really appreciate and understand what it is to be in a small business is when you're actually part of one mm. and where I think that's helped me uh, in particular is the challenges that we face as a smaller business are not overly dissimilar to what are faced by our partners feel in their own you know their advice practice or or their their you know their individual business and so I do feel that it's allowed me to have a better appreciation and understanding around what what some of those challenges are from a, a month to month perspective from a quarter to quarter perspective because you're not part of a big machine. And the machine yeah, yeah. doesn't just work, you know, almost like yeah. on repeat. It, it's it's something that you've got to be really conscious around the decisions you make, uh, and and you know, really offsetting that in a way that is is relative to your your size, your scale, your age, your maturity, and all of those type of things. So I think it's actually allowed me to be uh, more more comfortable in being able to have conversations at a level where I've got a, a shared understanding for smaller business. Yeah, yeah. Rather than the, the largest. Yeah, find, find me an advice firm who doesn't tell you that they're lacking resources. <laughs> um, everyone, I mean, we don't, not all of us have $180 million worth of funding behind us, but but it's still small business uh, nonetheless. Um, yeah, and I guess, I mean, you know, touching on that, and, and I kind of think of integrity very similar to my own business is, building from the ground up, learn, like I think about so many advice businesses that I, you know, learn from and, and, and take 
um, a lot of what they're doing. But again, similar to what integrity thinking, like digitizing the advice process as much as we can. How do we build as much efficiencies as we can? I guess the, the benefit of my business is I can turn clients away mm. much easier than I guess an insurer can whereby for me if if clients don't fit in my process and kind of if I if I build a you know a round hole and the clients are a square peg I can turn them away because I know there will be another firm who can help them but it, in the insurance game it's about volume really at the end of the day you kind of unless someone's really uninsurable you kind of want to be able to help everyone mm. so how do you um in your process, digitizing it, you've got a very clear philosophy on how the advice process should be. Mm. How do you guys work with the advice partners who may not fit your model and, sure. and how does that work? Well, Phil, I think that's one of the the beauties of being a business like ours is we're actually not for everyone and, and we're, we're really comfortable with that. And, and what I mean is that, you know, we are taking a particular path around what we believe our business proposition is where we believe we can add value, and and that won't align. That won't align with every practice. That won't align with every advisor. And and as such, I think that in itself helps there be a quite a mature determination that we're perhaps not a partner of choice or we're not appropriate because there's a misalignment. Um, so that's that's probably the starting point is, is really recognizing that there there is a need and a uh, a requirement to to basically embrace digital and tech and and if that isn't something that, that sits comfortably with a partner then we're not the we're not the right place for them because that's the basis on which we build our business so I think that that occurs you know um, as, as a natural byproduct of, of how we, we've set ourselves up there are also then other settings fill within your proposition which are around um, you know how do you how do you price your portfolio? And the way that you price your portfolio is to, to demonstrate where you are, uh, you're more attractive and you're looking to try and grow grow that type of business. And for us, you know, one of the things about being a, a new, uh, a new um, starter and a, and a new entrant in the, in the market is we, we can actually build a portfolio which is geared around what we think we'd like our long-term business to look like. So we've done some work that's around really targeting that sort of 30 to 45, um, what we call middle Australia. So those mums and dads who who need adequate protection, who are seeking advice because they see the value in advice, where insurance is a safety net that sits underneath them. And, and we're really trying to ensure that we're, we're making that accessible, that market accessible to insurance through the advice partners who are, again, you know, prepared to engage in more of a digitised or, or automated manner. Yeah, and I guess your your pricing will reflect the potentially the more you know tax savvy ta- tech savvy. Um, I'll learn to speak one day. The tech savvy um, end clients where is where you price. I guess is is um, yeah to, to kind of circle back around that. Well, yes, your business not every business partner will fit your business, but their end client will will fit your business based on your, your port, the way you're building your portfolio. And that, that's right, Phil, because what we, what we genuinely believe is when I spoke earlier about um, taking time cost and monetary cost out of the process or the experience, then that should actually flow through. That, that, that's, that should be passed through where we're able to achieve efficiency gains as the insurer. Mm-hmm. The advice practices that we partner with are able to achieve efficiency gains as a partner and, and that will subsequently reflect in how you can price 
and and how you manage your you know your portfolio, which ultimately then you know flows through to your customer as well. And the one thing that's really important is um, it's as much about where you participate as it is about where you don't participate. And I think when you're a smaller player, you, you recognise that you're not trying to be all things to all people and you recognise that you're not trying to um, ensure the entire market or to do business with every advisor and every every AS, AFSL in, in the country. It's, it's about being quite prescriptive to say, this is what the integrity proposition looks like and finding those partners and their, and their client opportunities where there's a natural fit. Yeah. And I guess being being a, a young business, like what are the what are the kind of main, you know, pain points that you guys have faced that, you know, looking back, you know, I know you haven't been there for, mm. for, for that long, but but you know, as a business looking back and going, Okay, well these have been the the outworkings of being a smaller business and these are the kind of the growing pains. I think one of the the most challenging aspects is is just perception. Perception of a new player, uh, you know, the market appetite to to accept a new player, and often you'll you'll find people say, "Oh, we want to see you get to year five, or we want to see you demonstrate a particular claims experience." Now, all of those things take time, Phil, and you actually need to have the opportunity to demonstrate experience. Yeah. So it's overcoming the the reality of saying, "I, I can't." can't show you an experience until I've had the experience. Yeah. And so it's that willingness or appetite to, to come on the journey uh, as an early adopter. And if, if you like the vision, if you like the direction of a, a different way of, of seeing life insurance in this market, it's actually coming on board and helping us build so that we can be here and we can show you and we can show those, those other advice partners out there um, that when those moments appear, we will be there and we'll deliver to our fundamental core because, you know, the one thing that's most critical is while the foundations on which we're building our business may be slightly different because we've got that opportunity as a new player, the, the one thing that remains consistent here is you're an APRA-regulated licence, life licence, which means yeah. that you have the capacity and capability to meet your obligations, particularly when, when we talk about things like claims. So yeah. the, the, the risk in that regard isn't there. It's just the demonstrated history, which will only come over a period of time. So that's certainly one aspect. It's around the, the market willingness to, yeah. to receive new entrant and give you the opportunity to, to build experience that, that ultimately will give confidence or otherwise. Yeah, I guess, I guess touching on that and going a bit deeper, what do you say to advisors who say that, well, we're not going to – it's not, I guess, from an advisor's point of view, it's not the, the worry that you're not paying a claim that is the concern because, as you said, you're an APRA-regulated insurer. It's the how likely are you to be around in five years' time or are you going to sell to one of the bigger, bigger end in town and they're just going to gobble you up and, and is my integrity policy going to be a AIA policy or tower policy? Yeah. So, I, I think the... Um well, the reality is, I, I can't, I can't assure anyone that you know of course. Where, where 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 things will be in the future. But we've got three, we've got three very um, committed investors, and they are Dido Life, so a large Japanese uh, insurer who have taken the opportunity to broaden outside of the Japanese market to take a position in the Australian market through the Integrity Life business. For anyone that's familiar with with Japanese. Uh, life company. They love us. They, they, say, say that again. 
they they love us here in Australia. They do, they do. Yeah. And and the one thing about the Japanese, and I've had experience in in a past life, is they take a very long term view, and so their intent around being involved in this business and being involved early in this business is around building and growing an international business that they they are deeply committed to, and I think over time will become even uh, more committed to as, as we continue to build and grow. We, we just, then- t- just, just touching on that, and I don't know if you've, you're the right person to ask this question to, but, but um, why, are they, why are they investing so heavily into the Australian life insurance market? Yeah, so I think there's a, there's a couple of aspects. One, um, and, I, and I won't talk in detail around the challenges with uh, in Japan, particularly when we, we talk about, uh, you know, rates of return, and on investment yep. and, and so on and so forth. But the reality is for most, um, they are looking at diversifying and growing their, their international portfolio because it's allowing them to diversify their, their home-based operations. Yep. And what you've seen, and there's a number of examples, obviously Daiichi with Tal and, and Nippon, obviously with MLC and the like, is there, there, are, uh, there are some examples of where that has occurred and as such it's made others in that particular market contemplate and consider their their position and, and fortunately for us Dido were um, you know were an established backer who came in and at the early part but what they see is a couple of fundamental things that I think are really important for the Australian market the the need for insurance remains relevant in this uh in this market as it does in in sort of all global markets but particularly if we reflect upon japan what they see is a relatively low penetration rate so the amount of people who actually hold insurance in the australian market versus what we see in japan and and i think what they see is the upside opportunity of being able to grow and, and participate and be part of our market um, continuing to grow and being able to ensure more Australians is something they want to they want to participate in. I think equally, what they see is a a really solid um, outlook for the sector, notwithstanding the challenges that we faced, because they do take a longer term view. You know, the challenge that we faced yeah. over the last number of years, and and we've weathered a fairly significant storm. But this has been at times where those particular institutions have chosen to double down and invest more heavily. So I think that demonstrates that they see this market emerging out of the challenges and becoming, you know, becoming healthy and vibrant again, which feel you and I both subscribe to because, you know, we do want to see a time where our industry flourishes again, but in a new version, in a different form from perhaps what that, that flourish flourishment looked like in the past. Well, yeah, I mean, I wasn't around back, back in the, the, the good old days, quote-unquote, when, um, when everyone was getting flown around the world for writing X amount of business with specific insurers. But, yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I totally agree. I think we've got um, so much to grow in the Australian life insurance market and that's why I've gone all in in my business in, in risk-only advice um, because I see the advice piece as being super key um, and I see the, the you know, everyone has a need for life insurance. I just think the – I mean, there's, there's a whole array of issues but the, everyone has the assumption that the super fund's taking care of it. I've got something in super, but when you look at it, yeah, and you go, well, okay, you've got a million dollars worth of debt, you've got two kids, and you know you're a stay-at-home mum, and you, you, you know, or dad, and and your partner's got two hundred thousand dollars of life in cover. Cover, 
how are you going to fare if something happens? Well, you're completely stuffed. Um, and so, yeah, I agree. There's, there's heaps of growth in this market. And, and you were going to touch on some of, some of the other kind of growing pains or, or roadblocks yeah. that you guys have faced. I think the, the other one that's really significant is when you are building something, it's probably no different to if you're building a house or, or, or whatever it, it may be. Um, there is the, the fact that you will meet milestones along the way, but again, you need time. And so building out your whole proposition is something that you need to work through in a methodical manner. It is something that you need to work through over time. And when I talk about building out our business, that's, you know, if, if we think about the, um, the operations type areas of your business, building that digital ecosystem and making sure that it, it is, you know, robust and sound is something where you need to sequence what you are delivering and at what points in time because none of us have the luxury of being able to create more time um, and equally as a startup, you, you don't have an abundance of available investable dollars that mean that you can build it all immediately. You've got to you've got to build in a really sensible and sustainable way. So that's one of the challenges is, is building out your environment, building out your proposition does take time. Uh, but I think as I, I've sort of touched on, investing in the right tech, investing in the right sort of ecosystem development allows you to continue to evolve that as you work through, but recognising that you need to build and, and you need time. You need time to, yeah. to be able to do that. So that's that's one of the aspects and, and that's probably the one that, you know, I, I appreciate at different different stages in the journey. You, you will have a different experience until such time as we've got a little bit further along and a little bit for, further matured in our, in our whole proposition. Yeah, and I know, and I know I put my grumpy pants on once uh, one day, and I sent you a, a a rough email and and the team as well. Um, but but I think um, you know as as a growing business and a business who is striving to make changes, it is help, like you've got to break some stuff as well. Like and and I think the the benefit of our conversation in the past is just putting your hand up and saying, yeah, we you know we've. We are learning, we are growing, we are getting better, and we're going to break some stuff. And uh, and as an advisor, it's it's much more it's it's better for me to hear that than saying this is the way we've done it for ten years and this is the way we're going to keep doing it, because then we go okay, well that that's broken, um, and you keep telling me how you're going to help me, in, you know, increase my enforce book if you know if there are small changes to my clients' life circumstances, and we need to increase their cover by an extra hundred thousand dollars. You keep telling me how you're going to invest in that, but but the dollars don't flow there, um, and which is what a lot of the big incumbents have been doing. Um, and as an advisor, you keep hearing it for you know year after year after year how they're going to invest in those things that impact me and my business and my profitability. Um, and so having that, you know, improving things and proving things on a regular basis and breaking things, and that's actually much better from an advisor's position. And even if I get my grumpy pants on sometimes, oh, no, Phil, I feel no, <laughs> it, it, it probably uh, it is very much in keeping with I think a robust and healthy healthy partnership. Right, is, is that we, we we call things as we need to, but I think equally it's around that acknowledgement of being on the journey with us as a partner that that means that when we do have those moments of saying, Phil, this is where we're at, this is where we're at in our journey of building. However. You know, in those areas in particular, it's a great chance to be able to say, tell us what you need. Mm. Tell us what you think good looks like because we're about to build it because we have to build it. So the input and the ability for our partners to help shape is is very much at the centrepiece because 
I'm not trying, with all due respect to the institutions I've worked for, when we're not trying to recreate them because we're actually building something that's new, which means the inputs are more around where are those pain points? Where are those areas that we need to, to do things differently? What are those things where if you're building it without legacy and without incumbency, what, what would you do differently? And that's where we are. So the inputs when, when we say, how do we make cover changes more efficient? How, how do we actually automate that process and what does good look like? Those yeah. inputs right now shape what ultimately gets not only developed but delivered because yeah. we've got to build it in our business. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I guess to kind of start to wrap this up, where where do you see the market in the next 10, 15, 20 years? Where do you see the whole market, well, whether it be advice, insurance or, or all of it? Yeah, well, hopefully, Phil, you and I are, are doing our, our next iteration of this call uh, in, in 10, 15, 20 years. Yeah. Uh, that would be nice. But but I think you know, more seriously, I think the, um, the outlook, as we touched on before, is actually really, really positive. Because the one thing that's remained consistent over too many years to, to remember is the fact that people need the protection and the safety net of what insurance brings them. That they, that, you know, that need will be universal for forever. Amen. But what they equally need is they need professional advice around how to appropriately structure and and and. Um, and put that type of program together so they have got that peace of mind, that they do have that safety net, that they do have the adequate protection that's required. So I, I think the opportunities remain enormous for us as a, as a sector and as an industry. What we have to do, though, is going back to one of our earlier points, we, we can't continue to live in an analogue world. You know, yeah. the, the, the world has moved and as such, we do need to break some of the thinking, some of the philosophy, some of the approaches that we have used for, you know, 30, 40, 50 years in our industry. We actually need to remain relevant and contemporary and as such, we need to move. And I say we, we as a collective, you know, insurers don't exist without partners, partners don't exist without clients like we we all have to recognize that the world around us is evolving but it then defies logic to think that we remain the same yeah we, yeah do you think in the next 15 years i mean i talked to a lot of advisors who are kind of pulling back from insurance advice um and a lot of their conversations is um well ai will do the product selection and underwriting one day like do you see that in in the like the long-term view where underwriting will be all automated and even potentially product selection will be automated? Mm. I think we've got to be really mindful. One of my previous points is around tech and digital will play an important role and I think we, we will work through what that looks like and where that's deployed. I don't believe it's a substitute for, for human interaction and human value in, in the process, it's a question of us really defining where, do, where does the human element continue to remain the most appropriate and the most valuable and where are those aspects that can be automated or they can be digitised. And I think yeah. it's about how you create the blend to make sure that you've got the right fit. So, Phil, for me, it's, it's not about um, everything going digital and everything being automated because I still believe that the human interaction is going to be important at various stages in yeah. the advice process 
and equally in the client engagement process and equally in the, the insurance process. But what happens at the moment is a lot of that is where you've got the human element being involved because we haven't enabled the environment to be more efficient and we haven't utilised digital and tech solutions that are actually more efficient and more effective to being able to bring down time and monetary costs. So yeah, yeah. I, I, I see it as being more of how do we blend them more effectively together rather than them being substitutes for one or the other. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, okay. So, two two last questions just to wrap things up. I'm always interested in when people get time to do emails. So, when do you get time to do your emails? Well, Early morning, middle of the day, middle of the night? So, so Phil, you, you've probably been the beneficiary of some of the times where I set aside to return <laughs> emails. Um, so, I've got a couple of things. Uh, Saturday mornings. So, while my family is still in bed, I, I jump up, try to plow out, you know, where I might have a backlog, particularly from the week that was. Um, may not always send them on the on the Saturday morning, but I'll I'll have them prepared and ready in order to to push out. Uh, and then the the other aspect is I do get up early uh, each yeah. morning, and I, I spend a block of time just trying to make sure one I stay on top of it, and and two I'm I'm trying to make sure that I respond in a, a timely manner as as possible. So they're my couple of little hacks because probably like most people on the call, uh, you're spending your other hours of the day engaged in either client act trying to do some real work he's actually doing the you know the real yeah. work yeah and and so i just try to block it in in that regard all right last question what's one interesting hobby that you have i am a massive afl fan i, I spent 10 years in melbourne uh and you know it, it's like a religion down there so uh that's certainly a hobby for me i'm i'm, more, I'm clearly for anyone that knows me i'm a spectator not a participant you can you can tell that in a multitude of ways. Yeah. So that's sort of my hobby. That's my go-to during during uh, the footy season. Uh, Brisbane Lions, for anyone that's interested, that's my team of choice. But I think the the other aspect is, and having a couple of young kids, uh, you know, you, you sort of pass yourself over to your role as a parent, which means that my hobbies are supporting my kids in their activities. I'm a, I'm a member of a number of different committees, a swimming club and you know, manager of the soccer team and all those sort of things that a lot of parents do. And that's sort of where I get my, you know, my hobby or my release from yeah. from what I do professionally to help my kids and help my family. Yeah, cool. All right, awesome. Well, thanks heaps. I really appreciate your time. How do people reach out and get in touch with you? Um, so listen, LinkedIn. LinkedIn's a good place to go. Um, more than happy for anyone to pick up the phone, give me a call, drop an email, DM me in, in the LinkedIn world. Love to connect and uh, yeah, also happy to put you in touch with any of the members of my team across the country if we can be of support or assistance. Great. Thanks, heaps. Really appreciate it. See you, Russell. Thanks, Phil. Thanks for joining us today. If you've enjoyed this episode and you think someone else will get value out of it, I'd love it if you could forward it on to them. And as always, we can continue the conversation in the My Risk Advisor Facebook group. All you need to do, open up Facebook and search My Risk Advisor and I'll see you in there.